from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in again. At the beginning of this year, we heard from a number of folks involved in our education system about how COVID has impacted the face of education today. And at that time, we were a year into the disruptions caused by the pandemic here in the United States. So in our last episode, we followed up with Sullivan West Superintendent Stephen Walker, eight months after our original conversation, because as luck would have it, we are still dealing with the effects of COVID to this day. But of course, our primary and high schools aren't the only educational institutions that are navigating these unusual circumstances. Our colleges and universities have to contend with it too. And here in Sullivan County, we are lucky to have a place of higher education right in our backyard. So this week, I caught up with the president of SUNY Sullivan, Jay Quaintance, and we started our conversation by rewinding to the beginning of 2020, when COVID was just starting to make headlines. Starting in January, there were glimmers of this kind of, oh, something scary is happening, something's going on, nobody's sure what it means or what it is or where it's coming from or where it's going. And at that time, we had a, a vacation planned to go to Australia for the last two weeks of February. And so I was, obviously I was paying attention and yeah. seeing things were going. And about that time, it started to kind of ramp up and it was getting to the point where it looked like we might not be able to get out of Sydney on our way mm-hmm. back. They were starting to take temperatures for people at the airport. And, you know, it's just, if you remember at that time, all of the precautions were kind of all over the map. I mean, nobody really knew what to do about right. any of it. Yeah. Scattershot throwing things at the pandemic at that time. And, you know, we ended up getting back, but it was a little touch and go. So um, come back March 1st or so. And, Really, it became a series of, okay, so now this is real and what are we going to do? And we were just trying to get all of the information that we could, both from um, SUNY System Administration, the governor's office, the New York State Department of Health, the CDC, the FDA, the White House, any place where we could find uh, some kind of roadmap for that. Overall, I think Cine System did a really great job. It was a really, really trying time. It's a huge lift to take 450,000 students who are all wow. engaged in school and do something universally across so that it's fair from campus to campus. And also recognizing that each college community is different. Each campus is different. Some have residence halls, some don't. What does that mean? So it came down to it that Friday the 13th would be the last day of in-person instruction on campus. We extended our spring break by an additional week to give people adequate time to get home, to resettle into some kind of quarantined life. 
and to give our faculty time to move their instruction from face-to-face to online. And, you know, I can't compliment our faculty and staff enough for the work that they did in that two weeks and then the follow the two weeks prior to the 13th and then the two weeks following that to get mm. everything in place in a way that we could resume instruction in a meaningful way and even in some cases more importantly provide support to our students because they had just gone through an incredibly traumatic experience for many of them and the there was so much that wasn't known and what the long-term implications were going to be. When would we be able to, I mean, you know, one of the things that came up that was really, really challenging for us was both our men's and women's varsity basketball teams had been um, very highly seeded in the national tournament that year. And as you can imagine, I mean, these are people who have played their entire life to get to the point where they could go to the college national championship in their, in their athletic career. Right. And it was heartbreaking, honestly, heartbreaking. And the NJCAA didn't really have an idea of what they were going to do. At some point it looked like they were just going to push it out a little further, wait till the pandemic kind of subsided or there would be some kind of tournament. And ultimately, obviously it was canceled and there, and you know, they lost out on that opportunity. But it was there was a lot of sense of disbelief on the part of people on campus that that this is in fact real and we have to do this. And um, so a lot of it was just kind of keeping people engaged, keeping people's spirits up, and just working through incredible decision trees over and over and over as new information <laughs> became available. It was nuts, honestly. <laughs> Moving forward over the last year and a half. And on the topic of those decision trees, what have been in your mind, some of the most significant and uh, challenging decisions that you and your team have had to make about how this school is going to look these days? Yeah. Um, To go back to something I said a few moments ago, I think one of the things, obviously instruction had to be shifted online and not everyone was equipped for that. So finding ways to support our faculty who had some, in some cases, no experience teaching in an online or distance learning environment, getting them the support that they needed and the coaching. And this is where I, again, can't say enough about the faculty who did have experience online. They really stepped up to help those who had none. And they studied together. They helped each other with technology issues. One of the things that we found out really, really quickly in the pandemic was so many people had lost jobs. So many family mm-hmm. members had lost jobs. And so many people in Sullivan County and in uh, rural Pennsylvania, as in many rural areas, broadband is a real issue. And so everyone was now working from home, learning from home, families with small children, their kids were going to school from home, and it really put a strain on the system. So one of the things that we participated in at the SUNY level was a plan to get laptops into the hands of as many students as possible so that technology wouldn't be an issue. We loaned out over 150 laptops to our students, we were shipping them to New York City. We had, you know, socially distanced pickup sites on campus. It was all hands on deck kind of effort. And then to complement that, we worked with the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan County to put up an external, very, very strong signal, external Wi-Fi access point in our parking lot so that families that didn't really have enough bandwidth, they could do work from home, but then come. And when they had to interact, you know, over a network connection, they could come to our parking lot. And it wasn't just for uh, the college community. It was really opened up for all of Sullivan County to be able to do that. 
So it was those kinds of little things. We started a food insecurity program. We realized that a lot of, because of the unemployment spiking, a lot of families were undergoing significant um, hunger issues. So we set up a program through our foundation to provide uh, grocery store gift cards to families and of our students so that they could maintain, you know, a good diet. You know, that's important for learning. And that has kind of extended. Now we have a much larger on-site food, uh, food pantry here that we're, you know, it's, it's awful to say that this is something that college students really do face, but it is something that they absolutely do. And we want to make yeah. sure that we're trying to provide the kinds of services that they need. I think the thing that has been most trying thinking forward 18 months is just decision fatigue in all honesty, because it just keeps evolving and we do our best. We make decisions. We have a very strong team here and we work really closely with partners across the state, but the decision we make today might not be the adequate solution for something that comes to light tomorrow. And we just have to always be ready for that. In terms of those programs that kind of had to innovate on the fly. How much of that is planned to continue beyond the pandemic? Um, And and how many things that were created at SUNY Sullivan in response to the pandemic are now planned to continue past when hopefully we can someday stop wearing masks and not worry about how uh, every interaction is going to feel two weeks later? You know, that is a fantastic question because one of the things going into the pandemic, we were among the 30 community colleges in New York, we were one of the only community colleges to see an increase in enrollment year over year uh, going into 2019. So we were Mm. on a good trajectory. We had a lot of great things in place. COVID came and blew most of that kind of stuff up and we're just still, and who knows how long we're all going to be suffering from the enrollment decline and what that looks like. But it's also important to think that or to remember that colleges like Sullivan play a much larger role in their communities than simply being the first two years of college for traditional college age students. We also have very strong community partnerships. And one of the things that we learned is that uh, collectively we can do much better for our larger community. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that we did that absolutely are continuing in a in whatever period of the pandemic this is, I, I don't think we can say post-pandemic, but um, mid-pandemic period, is we took all of our community learning courses and our, so we had a, a pretty robust um, community learning platform that uses a lot of the same technology as our classroom-based instruction, but we were able to partner with organizations like Sullivan 180, um, uh, Catskill Mountain Keeper to keep getting information out to the community, whether it was specifically health related and COVID related, or just um, the kinds of things that people always need to be learning about better nutrition, um, legal services, all those kinds of things. And we will absolutely continue to offer those across multiple platforms when we're back um, on the other side of this. You know, because of the, the vaccination mandate from SUNY system, really that applies to anyone who steps on our campus as a learner. So we really have very little capacity to do anything with folks who have not been vaccinated outside of extending our, our reach through technology enhancements like that. Uh, one of the other things that came out of it during this process or during the period of COVID, 
we engaged in a strategic planning process for a new five-year strategic plan. And it's obviously responsive to some of the things that COVID had produced. We recognize that it's very much more important for people to have opportunities to be outside with one another. So we, for instance, um, sustainability has always been a core value of the college and part of our core mission, but we're really trying to realize how can we better use the, the 405 acre campus that we have here to provide instructional areas on campus, but also um, you know, an, an enhanced nature trail system that people can use to be outside more and to, uh, you know, go snowshoeing in the winter, for instance, just keep it as a year round endeavor, stay outside, stay distant, <laughs> stay healthy, um, get exercise, eat well, all of those things are really uh, primary and will definitely continue. I'm glad you brought up the enrollment numbers and, and the kind of tricky situation that, that COVID puts that in a minute ago. Obviously, enrollment and finances for so many community colleges across the United States are uh, in a difficult position, um, both pre-pandemic and uh, certainly more than ever now. Um, what is the plan at SUNY Sullivan to eventually try to get both of those things back to where you would ideally like to have them? You're completely right that it was challenging prior to COVID. Post-secondary education is fighting a couple of different fronts in that. One is uh, sustained decline in public investment in higher ed, starting in the 70s. The public share of higher education funding, especially at the state level, began to decline fairly steeply, and it caused some real problems. And it was, you know, it's totally responsible for the, the increase in tuition over time which then triggered the uh, increase of reliance on student loans because at the federal level, free money, Pell Grant money primarily didn't keep up with the necessary increase in uh, tuition. So on the funding side, we had a structural problem that individual colleges have very little to be able to do about. On the enrollment side, we were fighting a demographic problem with a declining population of 18 to 24 year olds, which is our traditional college age student and our primary audience for the, the uh, our core academic mission. So in order to counteract that, there's a couple of things that we're trying to do. Obviously, building scholarship funding um, you know, through foundation fundraising, and that is going to be primary coming out of it. But even more importantly is innovation in terms of um, reaching an audience of students or learners. So part of that is making sure that our programs are relevant and up-to-date, that they offer as much value uh, to the students as possible, um, that the value proposition is real providing outstanding customer service to our students to retain them once they've made the choice to attend here. Keeping them here through to completion is really important. Creating strong articulation agreements with partner institutions so that a student can complete two years here and know that they can transfer at the full junior level to a bachelor's program at another college. Uh, partnering with four-year schools, such as we did with Empire State College to provide access to a bachelor's level nursing program right here in Sullivan County. So students don't actually have to go anywhere else to complete that program. And, you know, we've been very successful in more than doubling the size of our nursing program in the last several years. And we expect that will continue. It's meeting the workforce needs for Sullivan County. We're also doing the same kinds of things in 
the revitalization of the hospitality and tourism industry that is emerging as uh, it was it was happening prior to COVID, but it's really taking off during COVID. I mean, uh, you know, we have a very low unemployment rate. And it's primarily because we have a really strong healthcare sector, uh, including the agencies that serve individuals with developmental and intellectual disabilities, but also the hospitality and tourism industry is very, very strong. So we want to make sure that we're providing the kinds of programs that students need. We're providing them the services that they need in order to be successful. And then we're connecting them with something on the other side of us. So whether that is transfer to a four-year school, an opportunity to complete a four-year degree, or a, a strong opportunity to enter the workforce in a way that um, pays them a living wage and provides them with a, a gratifying career track. suddenly put in charge of New York State higher education policy. You can now wave your hands and create any higher ed policy that you'd like. What is that kind of day one slew of policies from Jay Quaintance going to look like? <laughs> so um, that sort of was my job for a while. <laughs> I was assistant secretary for higher ed in the governor's office, and I was asked that question on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> this is perfect then. <laughs> um, so it's not, it's not something I haven't thought about. New York spends a, a, a huge amount of money on higher education, um, between nine and $10 billion a year, which wow. is enormous, right? It's a, it's a, and it's a large portion of the state budget. I think that from my perspective, I guess what I would try to do is invest in exactly what I just described, which is making sure that students are ready to go to college. So, you know, strengthening the connection between the K-12 world and the post-secondary world, fixing the funding model for community colleges so that if the history of community college funding in New York kind of goes back to 1973. In 1973, it was really figured out that um, the state should be responsible for a third of the cost to educate students. A local sponsor, most often a county or several counties should be responsible for a third of that cost and students themselves should be responsible for a third of the cost. That went into law in 1973. And by 1974, uh, the next year's budget said, well, notwithstanding any law to the contrary, we're not doing that anymore. And it has not been that way since. <laughs> wow. The state has, huh. has divested in uh, community college funding there's been peaks and valleys within that, but historically the trend is a, a divestment in the state's share. And as I said, more and more of that has shifted to the students, um, primarily because student loans became cheaper and more available and were really pushed in the 90s and early 2000s. And so what any college president would do is, well, I'm going to raise tuition and I'm going to get it out of somewhere. It's going to come from federal grants or it's going to come from student loans and then students can take it with them. Um, it's a really unfortunate circumstance and one that I would like to see turned around. 
the, the conversation at the federal level led by the Biden administration over uh, a federal program to fund the first two years of college through community colleges so that there is no cost to students or their families sounds really good. I don't know what the details of what they're planning are. And the part that people need to also remember is that in, in my experience, and I believe this to be the case in this as well, and I would be happy to be mistaken in this, but they're really talking about tuition. So the student portion of tuition, but there's so much else that goes into the cost of a, a student attending community college, especially if they're attending a residential community college. But even if they're not, they still have to pay rent and they still have to have transportation and they still have to have you know, car insurance and they may have families and they may have, a, there's a lot of other things that go into the overall cost of attendance. So while tuition might be I'm just going to throw a number out there. It might be $5,000 a year, which sounds great and super affordable. And it is the total cost of attendance for that same student based on their expected family contribution and what their income is, could be as high as $12,000. So there's this other seven that sits out there um, that has to come from somewhere. And I, my hope would be if we're really going to make a federal commitment or even a state commitment to funding, fully funding community college for all students at no cost, that the entire cost of attendance would be part of that conversation. But as you can imagine, that's a very expensive proposition. And again, there's a lot of competing interests for public funding, I guess, right. the, the kindest way to say it. And, and honestly, they're by and large, mostly valid. Just to get back to our conversation on COVID things before we call it a day here, as you mentioned earlier, there's now a mandate for all learners that go to SUNY Sullivan to be vaccinated. How has that been going? And have you gotten pushback on it? So the history of the mandate is a little, uh, caused us some problems. And I think it did across the state. So it was the SUNY Board of Trustees uh, made the decision months and months and months ago to mandate the vaccine, but it was all based on when the FDA would identify one of the vaccines for regular use instead of emergency use. I see. Yeah. That happened about a week before school started. So it didn't really give us time to get the work. I mean, we had been talking with students and saying this is likely to come, but we didn't, we weren't able to get everybody vaccinated by the beginning of the semester. Right now, we have about 900 students enrolled. Um, currently for this semester. My understanding is that we're down to about 45 that have either not been vaccinated or not shown us um, evidence that they've been vaccinated. So we're working through those last few folks. We're, I guess I, I should say that is for students who are taking instruction on campus. If you're a fully online student, you don't need to be vaccinated and we're not keeping track of that. And just for, for an idea for, for folks who aren't familiar, what is the share of students that are on campus versus totally online right now? We have about 700 on campus. Okay. It's a pretty, pretty large number. So of that 700 right now, we're at about 43, 44 that we don't know if they're vaccinated or if they're planning on getting vaccinated. So we're, we're working through that, but which I would say is incredibly successful. We've done a great job. Our students have done a great job. We've lost some, obviously, because they didn't want to be vaccinated for various reasons, whether they, um, you know, most of them were personal issues or, you know, and in some cases, just there's a lot of misinformation about the vaccines and what the potential hazards are. 
Um, and so we've been trying to educate students so that they can make a choice that's based on the best information available as opposed to what they might find on Facebook or Instagram, which isn't probably the greatest source of information or even just Googling, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you can all Google things and you Google one way, I'll Google another, and we're going to come up with two completely divergent solutions to the same question. So, um, but yeah, so we we did early on mandate any students that were going to live in our residence hall needed to be vaccinated. Any students who wanted to participate in intercollegiate athletics needed to be vaccinated. So that took up, you know, that's a few hundred right there and then or a couple hundred, and then that left the rest. Um, yeah, I, I mean, our, our staff has done an outstanding job of getting people through this process um, we knew we were going to lose some, from what I hear, around other colleges. We haven't lost nearly as many as some have. And it hasn't, and I don't think any of us has lost as many as we believe we might. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just, you know, if you look at it, we're whatever, that's 98, 99% of our students are vaccinated or have, um, you know, have shown us that they are vaccinated against the backdrop of the county, which is somewhere around. If we count partially vaccinated, it's probably around 57 or 58 percent. So we're, you know, we're we're performing well in that regard. About 90 plus percent of our faculty and staff have been vaccinated. Um, we just mandated the vaccine for uh, condition of employment for management confidential and non-union employees, and you know, with a few exceptions, everybody's complying with that. So we're we're pretty happy with it. I'm glad you brought up the topic of misinformation being a prevalent issue with why some students and some folks more broadly have, have decided not to get vaccinated for the time being. As an institution of higher education, how does SUNY Sullivan deal with this emergence of, let's say, alternative facts, if you will? Yeah. What a phrase that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not new, obviously, uh, but the pandemic has created, you know, this is me speaking, not me speaking for SUNY Sullivan, but the era that we've been living through for the last, I don't know, six years, five years or so has been one where the stakes got a lot higher for people believing alternative facts or choosing to believe things that are not verifiable in the traditional sense of verification, I guess, is the way I would put it. Yeah. When the pandemic hit and um, that kind of belief system or decision-making was in place and people had sort of learned to think like that and had, I think, actually been led to think like that, um, it created a real public health problem. And so the stakes got a lot higher. And as a, a institution of higher ed, I'll put my Sunni Sullivan hat back on. I really do believe that it's incumbent on us to, to try to lead people in a different thought pattern. So this is what counts as a verifiable idea. This is where, um, you know, science is real. You might not like the answer that comes from that, but it doesn't make it not true. It just means it's something that you choose to receive in a different way and, and decide for yourself how you want to think about it. But that's not the same as saying it's not true. You know, I, I mean, I've heard people say that one of the issues that they have with the vaccine is that um, it seemed rushed 
or it seemed as though it was done with a high degree of profit motive because basically the federal government is paying these pharmaceutical companies an enormous amount of money to do that. And so somehow that calls into question what the process was or whether or not it is what it says it is or what people say it is. But the evidence is, even if it, even if it was done from a profit motive, the evidence still says, if you get the vaccine, you are much less likely to become significantly sick. If we all get vaccinated, we are all less likely to transmit the virus or let the virus mutate away from our ability to control it. So, you know, we just have those conversations with people. It's not, and for us, I don't want to argue with anyone. You know, everyone's entitled to their belief structures, but what I would like to do is just say, okay, but can we talk about it? And can we have a conversation? And, you know, we've actually gotten some students who initially were resistant to getting the vaccine, who had uh, applied for various exemptions. And then at the end of the day, you know, somehow it comes back to an idea of a cost-benefit analysis that they just say, oh, well, if it means that I have to do this to stay in school, then I'm going to do it because finishing my education is more important than all of the things I may believe about the vaccine. All these other people are getting it. The problems don't seem to be there or it's a risk I'm willing to take and so I can complete my education. The last question I just want to put out there, how are you and the faculty and staff doing a year and a half into all of this? What's your sense of people's energy level and and willingness to kind of just keep persevering? Education is a social endeavor. And so how we as individuals kind of fit together and work together really has a a pretty significant impact on our ability to pursue what we do. So yeah, we're fatigued for sure, but being able to open this semester and have students back on campus has had such a positive impact on morale. It's incredible because really everyone who went into this job, you know, whether they teach biology or work in student services, or if you interact with students, it has been really horrible over the last um, year plus prior to being able to open. It was heartbreaking to send everyone home. You know, there were tensions that came up in any workplace, right? Like, uh, is work being distributed equally? Are people working hard from home? Are they actually doing what they say they're doing? Then there's this other group of people who think that they're doing so much work that other people aren't or whatever. I mean, just all of that, most of that now has kind of gone away. I mean, because we're just back, we're back, we pass each other in the halls. We have meetings. Sure. We're still wearing masks if there's more than two of us in a meeting, but it's, um, it's been really, really gratifying. I, I think when we get to Christmas break, it's going to feel like a major milestone that we got if knock on wood if we can get through it without having to close down and quarantine and do anything crazy i think people will feel like wow we did this and um, i know i certainly will and i'll i think we'll all look forward to some well-earned time off at that point because for many people there just hasn't been any time off we've just been you know every day you just had to keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. And, and as stressful as I think it's been for me, I'm unbelievably privileged. Most of us who work here are considerably better off than many of the students that we serve. And I think about the, the 
impact that it has had on our students who, you know, all of the things that I was speaking about earlier, you know, too many people living in a household, dramatic losses of income, uh, just stressed trying to make sure that they're educating their own kids and still taking time to educate themselves, loved ones suffering from the pandemic and possibly losing loved ones or or close friends and other family members. The number of dissertations going to be written as a result of this pandemic on virtually every aspect of, you know, 21st century life is going to just make people's heads spin because I don't think any of us have uh, an idea on what the long-term impact is. I was just listening to a TED talk about the impact of long-term low-level stress on people's cardiovascular health, whether or not you exercise, whether or not you take proper medications, whether or not your diet is good, just that baseline stress has a, a pretty significant impact on, on our physical bodies. And we don't really understand it. And if this has been one thing, it's been 18 months of mostly not quite so low-level stress. Thank you so much to SUNY Sullivan President Jay Quaintance for joining us on the program this week. Jay brought up a number of interesting topics related to higher education, from the cost of college to the struggles of remote learning to the services that a 21st century place of higher education can and should offer to students. So in some of our upcoming episodes, we're going to continue the conversation about college and dive into a few of the major issues surrounding it today here in New York. But in the meantime, I hope you get a chance to get outside and enjoy some of this fall weather. The trees are looking beautiful in the Catskills, and it is still warm enough that we can feel our extremities. Doesn't get much better than that. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a production of WJFF Radio Catskill. Thanks for listening, and as always, have a great week. <laughs>